0: I'm going to be um, in Mark 2, um, we're covering four verses, um, verses 18 through 22 in just a second. Um, Anybody in here, and don't raise your hand, um, have issue with authority? (laughs) All the rebellious people in there are like, yep, I do. Uh, Authority in our day and age is kind of an ugly word. Um, Some hearing that even the word authority" gives you uh, an agitate. It builds this anxiety in you. You're already frustrated because you're thinking of people that have misused their authority, which happens a lot in our culture and in our world, in our country. and it, so it's easy for us to have issues with that. Today we're going to journey into Mark and see that many in Mark 2 had issues specifically with Jesus' authority. They didn't trust His authority. In many, if not most, of our current issues that we have, you have right now, this may be painful, or because you trust your authority over Jesus'. You trust what you think or believe over what you know to be true in the world. And we run into a door over and over again when we decide, and this is me included, this isn't Pastor Heath telling you guys how much you're getting wrong. Like, I run my face into the door of it all the time because I'm thinking, like, yeah, 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 I got this, it's okay, no big deal. When in reality, um, I know better. And I think a lot of us know better, and today I want to get into these four verses and talk about um, really the devastation that comes from us trusting us and others more than we trust Jesus. Jesus was not meant to, and this is my one thing that I want you to hear today. Jesus wasn't meant to be an added piece to our life, and if you've read ahead and looked at what this is you'll that'll make a little bit sense and if not I will help it make sense but Jesus wasn't meant to be just an added piece to our life before we get into the word let's pray Jesus you know the hearts of everyone in this room you know where we struggle where we don't trust where we go off on our own and lord today we need Hear from you, Lord. We need to hear Your word to our heart, Lord, that we would move towards trusting You more and more. Lord, we acknowledge our failures in trusting ourselves, our um, our failures of um, knowing but not doing what You've asked us to. The Lord expose in us um, through Your Word things that You want us to hear. Let us hear it in Jesus' name, Amen. So in Mark two, there's actually uh, the whole, whole, all of Mark two. There's four different kind of story arcs that are in there, and all four of them deal with. Um, People's issue with Jesus' authority, challenging his authority. Why? What gives him the right to do something? I'm going to explain the first two. We're going to talk about the third one, um, and the fourth one you can read later. So, the first one uh, is a very famous story. If you, were, uh, if you existed in churches when they had flannel grass, you know, when they would Velcro them things to the wall. Um, you've heard the story of the paralytic that his friends brought to the house that Jesus was in, that people were so eager to see Jesus that no one could get close to him. They wanted their friend healed. They climbed on the roof, they ripped the roof open, and they lowered him down. And you know what Jesus did? When he got down to the ground, he looked up, he saw his friend's faith, and he forgave his sins. I don't know if you know this because we live 2,000 years after these events and so many of us have um, kind of Jesus as our, our backdrop and Jesus' stories as our backdrop. We don't realize how big a deal it was for someone to come on to the world walking around in skin and forgive someone's sins. We think of it like that's what Jesus came to do. Well, in this day and age, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that heard that were like, oh, no, this is blasphemy. And you know what they did with blasphemy? They stoned you. This is the beginning of Acts 2. This is what he's doing. So, so he knows in his heart that this is the dialogue that's going on. There are little whispers in the back of the room like who gives him the right to forgive sins. That is God's right. Not some traveling preacher. Jesus knowing that this thought was going on in their head. He says so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins. I'm going to tell them to get up. And he says, get up. And they're paraplegic, stands up, takes his mat, and it says, at the begin, end of this little section, no one had seen this before. And so he leaves. And then the next story arc right after this is the calling of Levi, uh, which I read, I actually was going to preach on Levi. Um, I read tons of commentaries this week on whether Levi was really Matthew, Matthew, Levi. Um, I believe he was. Whether he is or not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but Levi was a tax collector. Jesus walks by. And if you haven't, and I, I'm, if you watch this and you're like, oh, whatever, there's some videos out there called The Chosen, if you've seen those. Um, I'm not saying they're 100% biblically accurate, whatever. It is probably the most beautiful story arc. brought me to tears seeing Matthew being called by Jesus. I mean, <clears throat> So, Jesus walks by this tax collector, which we've talked about this even last week, that tax collectors were the most hated people of the day. Jesus walks by him, calls him to follow him. This is like a rabbi asking, like, a future, you know, a disciple to come and follow him, and he picks the one that no one would pick. And then, right after that, Levi, those a party, invites all of his sinner friends, and they come, and Jesus eats with them at a table, which in this culture, to eat with someone was a big symbol of, like, connection, of approval. And Jesus was there eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees, which were always around, always watching Jesus. We're like, how can he eat with them? And Jesus has this famous line that says, you know, the sick or the well aren't in need of a doctor, that the sick are. That's what Jesus came for. So this leads us into Mark, um, verse 28, or sorry, verse 18. And I'm going to make some speculations here that aren't, you know, they aren't solidified specifically in the world, but it, it, I think, makes it read a whole lot better in a sense that the conversation that's getting ready to be happening right now is about fasting. Fasting, uh, in the Torah, there was one specific um, fast per year on the Day of Atonement. That was the one day that, uh, biblically, was, you were supposed to fast. Uh, in this day and age, the Pharisees had added to that, and they had two days a week that they would fast. There's some speculations on what I read that literally the day that, I don't know, see this is all here nor there. Um, The day that they're eating this dinner with the sinners and the tax collectors was potentially a day that they were supposed to be fasting. Whether it was or not, I don't know. But it makes this a whole lot more interesting. So in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples, which is John the Baptist, and the Pharisees, were fasting. Because that's what they did. And people came and said, so this wasn't necessarily the Pharisees asking this question, or disciples of John's asking this fact, but people are seeing that John's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, and so people came and said to him, Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your Disciples do not. See, until the close of John's preaching, at this time he was in prison, it was the error of mourning, fasting, and preparation. With the presence of Jesus, it is now the era of celebration. And when disciples do something, it reflects the rabbi. And when the disciples don't do something, it reflects the The rabbi. And since Jesus' disciples weren't fasting, the conclusion would be that Jesus didn't make them. That Jesus didn't teach them that. That they're looking for some reason to discredit Jesus. Why would a good rabbi not have his disciples fasting like everyone else? And this is Jesus' response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Another key thing to look at here is Jesus, just like going back to the first part where he. Forgave sins. Jesus is considering himself the bridegroom. He he's saying that. He said, The reason why my disciples aren't fasting is because I'm here with them. I'm in their presence. Why would you mourn and fast during a wedding feast, which is celebration? The bridegroom is a metaphor for God used through all the New Testament and through the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling the hearer of this is this is why they're not. Fasting. And then he gives, verses 21 and 22, he gives two somewhat odd statements that I'm going to explain because in our culture we, 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 don't, we throw away everything that has a hole in it. Nowadays, any, don't, don't raise your hand. Um, it would be interesting how many people have a hole in something that they've patched. Probably nobody in this room. There you go. Deacon? See? Okay. So then Jesus tells them, you know, that they cannot fast now because I'm here with them. And then he tells them this thing, which I think at the root of everything today is what I want to get at, which Jesus wasn't meant to be an added piece to your life. So in verse 21, it says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the the new from the old, and the tear, and and a worse tear is made. Okay, we exist in a culture that we get all of our clothes pre-shrunk, so most of us don't understand the reality of clothes that shrink. Now, during COVID, our clothes may be feeling like they're shrinking, but it's probably because we're eating more. Just say it. But in this day and age, you would get cloth, the cloth that you have wasn't washed, it wasn't pre-shrunk, and so after you've had it for a while, and you start wearing it out, and that a hole comes, or a tear comes, if you're gonna patch it, he's saying you cannot patch it with a new piece of cloth that's going to shrink when you wash it before. And I know this seems like not a big deal, but in, in this culture, a set of clothes was very valuable. Most people didn't have a closet full of stuff. When you go home today and you look through your closet of all these options that you have to wear, this culture, you had one or two if you were lucky. This is why when Jesus was being crucified, they were um, playing dice for his clothes. Clothes were very valuable because people didn't have them. So they would repair them. And so he's saying, hey, we cannot just add this little piece, this patch to it, and then it would be ruined. So if we add something to the old, this new thing, when they're washed together, it's going to, it's going to make it worse. And then he tells them this in verse 22. It says, And no one puts, on new wine, puts new wine into old skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Not anybody in this room, I'm assuming, has any wine in wineskins at your house. It's probably, if you're real classy, in boxes. (laughs) If you're really, really classy, it's got a bottle with a screw top. And if you're really, really classy, you have to have a tool to get out this thing. I'm a wine connoisseur, you can tell. But in this day and age they would they would get a wine they would get a skin an animal skin and it be sewn together to be prepared and it would be unused so they would put wine in it and we don't know this either unless you make wine or um, brew beer but fermentation process it expands so when they pour this new wine that's not fermented into this thing and they close up this wineskin if it is a new wineskin that it has the capacity to stretch then it'll be maintained through the fermenting process. And then at the end, it'll be useful. But if you try to use that skin again to put new wine, once it's already expanded, what happens? It's all ruined. See, Jesus was unsettling the system the Pharisees had created and manipulated and made to their advantage. He he was not going to come into the world and be a piece, a cog, another thing in it. He was coming to turn it upside down. See, in our culture, and I think it's real easy here in the South, um, Jesus becomes kind of something that we add to our life. You know, we're good Southern people, conservatives. Joking about that, um, and we add Jesus to a component of our life. He, he becomes something that you know we add in our back pocket. If those that heard my testimony about when I got baptized when I was 16, I, I wanted to you know kind of check that box and make sure I got into heaven. So I got sprinkled because I was Presbyterian at the time. Um, so that I would have access to God. And I think we treat Jesus like that. We add him to our life so that we can have some design benefit where Jesus, just like these two examples, will not be added to our old, broken life. He won't be just poured in. And, And I know you're like, well, we want to add Jesus to our life, but look at the metaphors here. We want to keep that old broken shirt and add Jesus to it we want to keep that old worn out wineskin and add Jesus to it and let me just tell you and just like I said at the beginning of my introduction most of our challenges most of our issues right now is because we're trying to do that we're trying to add Jesus to our already broken already chaotic life thinking that he'll fix the issue you know if you add something sweet on top, of, on top of something disgusting, it's still going to be disgusting. almost said poop, but I shot away from it. <laughs> it doesn't fix the issue. And this is what I think today, this morning, that I, I want to, like, settle in. Jesus is never going to be satisfied with a piece of you. And... Listen to this, you're never going to be satisfied with just a piece of Jesus. It is us existing in two different places which we cannot do. Timothy Keller had this, uh, I don't know if it was his concept, but it's where I read it originally. He called um, the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom. Everything that we think, you know, this normal kind of... Uh, pyramid of how things lead up it's completely upside down the least shall be the greatest the first shall be the last the tax collectors and sinners have access to the kingdom this is what Jesus was coming into but I want to And we're going to take communion. Hopefully you didn't sit on this little thing that was in your seat and now your pants are stained. We're going to take communion in just a second. But I want to speak to this idea about Jesus having the authority to speak truth because he is truth. Period. And if you're existing in your world adding Jesus to it, it's going to be a frustrating life and I, and i don't hear hear me this i'm not a health wealth and prosperity gospel preacher uh i think that's a bunch of garbage because if you look at um the disciples whom jesus loved the 11 that were left after judas uh um, 10 of them died horrible deaths loving serving jesus more more wholeheartedly than anyone in this room ever will and they die horrible deaths being obedient to jesus So I'm not saying, hey, if you give Jesus everything, everything's going to be all right. You know, your finances are all of a sudden going to turn around and your relationships are going to be perfect. Honestly, if we believe, which we do in spiritual warfare, if you begin to turn that leaf over, you can expect some challenge to it. You can expect some opposition. If you get opposition, I think that's kind of like I'm moving in the right direction. Where I think when Jesus, if we exist in a world where Jesus is just a piece of it, when we walk into that opposition, it's like that thing, it rips and ruins our garment. <laughs> because we're not ready for it. But when we when we surrender and work on this place of being a disciple of Jesus and giving him the authority to speak. And this is why... I say almost every Sunday, why you've got to get in the Word, because the Word is the place that those words come from. The Word is the one trusted place when you're reading these things about these wineskins. And I'm, I'm telling you, over the last 24 years of me being a follower of Jesus, I've probably read this, I don't know how many times, and I've always been like, not that I don't understand it, but it's like, what? And reading it this, this week, I was just like, man, this is a lot of our lives. We're we're trying our hardest to have just enough of Jesus to get into heaven, which suffers us right now. So my question for you this morning before we get to communion is, do you trust Him? Do you trust Him enough, not that you'll perfectly hear this, not that you'll perfectly walk this out, but do you trust Him enough to move forward? You trust him enough to allow him, because there's things going on in our life right now is that we're, we're 100% that we need to fix that. 100% that we know that we're relying on us and we need to turn this over to Jesus. If we in this room right now, knowing the things that we know already, of things that we know that we're walking contrary to what God has asked us to do, what if just today we decided one of those things we're going to turn over to God? We're going to invite him into this process of whatever broken relationship, whatever flaw is going on, whatever temptation that you're dealing with, whatever it is, and just say, God, I need you. I know that you're not an additive that's going to fix this. I know that you want me to surrender it to you and trust you enough to follow. See, what we are going to do, and our old days of intinction are are gone. In the new days of these cups right here, which they were handled with sanitized hands placed on your chair, and they're safely contained inside of this. Communion is something that we do as believers. If you're not a believer you can just leave it on the seat and no one's going to think poorly of you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus did this as a reminder for you that you couldn't fix your problems, you could not save yourself that we have, and this is why he says do this in remembrance of me, because we need to remember and acknowledge over and over and over and over again that it was his work on the cross that saved me. It was his work on the, on the cross that break, brought me to this position that I can even have the option of surrender and being back in harmony with God. And so what I would like for us to do with communion, and we have our worship team come back up. Today, a communion today can be an acknowledgment. That Jesus was not meant to be a piece of your life. He was meant to be surrendered to. He was meant to be your Lord. I've always reminded, I think most Southerners want a Savior minus the Lord part. But you don't get Savior without Lordship. And communion today is a reminder of that fact. As you take communion... And we're, we're, I'm not going to lead you into taking the elements. What I'm going to do uh, here in just a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to go into worship. You have this whole song to get to that place that you're ready to consume. Because uh, in 1 Corinthians, it says specifically, we need to weigh our hearts. If there's things going on in your life that you need to acknowledge before you take communion, do that. Do that. Because this is the reminder that we are His people. This is the reminder that it wasn't my blood or my body that saved me. It was His. This is our means of surrender. So as you take communion today, let communion be a submission to Jesus' authority. Because your pl- peace and your joy and your eternity hinges on this moment Of trusting and believing Jesus as that. And the best life that you're going to have here in this world. Is one of surrender. We cause most of our own issues. We cause most of our own problems. Because we're trusting us more than we trust Him. So I'm going to pray for us. Worship is going to start um, you sit, stand, sing. When you're ready to take communion, take communion. Because this is our entry into this family. This is what makes us brothers and sisters, not our birth, who, what family we're born into, what family we marry into. This is what makes us family. This is what makes us fight for unity in the body of Christ. Because we are one people under one God. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, you you know in our own lives where we're struggling with this reality. And Lord, I, I pray that today as we take communion, that it would be an open acknowledgement to ourselves that we trust you, that we need you and we want to follow you. Our salvation comes solely from you. The one who entered this world willingly, with obedience, walked out every single thing that was required. Even death on a cross. So Lord, we honor Your sacrifice in communion, and we acknowledge our continued need for you. Lord, change our hearts this week where we're openly walking contrary to what you've called us to do. Lord, help us with faith. Walk the other way. Lord, we love you. We are grateful that you did come the sick lord we're grateful that like the the tax collectors and sinners now had a hope where they didn't before or let that hope rest in us that you came for me you came from us in this room or be honored as we worship you we pray these things in jesus name.